welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am your host today, Dr. Camden Bird, and I am an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Dr. Dana Kaldemeyer, who will be talking about her new book, Union Renegades, Miners, Capitalism, and Organizing in the Gilded Age, which was published by the University of Illinois Press as part of their Working Class in American History series. Dr. Dana Kaldemeyer is an associate professor of history at South Georgia State College. Her research interests include labor, agriculture, capitalism, and industrialism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Dana, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome to Heartland History. Well, thank you so much for having me, Camden. We are excited, and your book is so great, and it, it's, it certainly fits into you know what the Midwestern History Socia- Association is all about. So I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, and maybe before we jump in, you could just give us a little bit of background of this project. Where did this research project for Union Renegades begin? How did you decide to study this particular topic? Well, it started whenever I was a grad student, actually. I was reading through labor organizing organization papers and, and things like that, newspapers, reports from union leaders, and they basically were talking about this problem that they had with organizing the, the coal miners and, and other um, occupations as well, but really I was looking at the coal miners in particular, and it just drove organizers nuts. They, they said, well, these workers, they understand that the dangers of the mines, they understand the, the benefits of unionism, but they still won't join the union, or they'll join and then they leave, and so they just cannot figure this out, and so they start blaming the miners themselves, saying, oh, they're too dumb, they, they don't understand what's good for them, and and it just so happened that at that exact same time, activists were saying that about workers in the present day. And so it just it kind of caught my attention. And so that's kind of where I got my research question. Uh, basically, I wanted to know why someone who knew the benefits of unionism would still refuse to join the union. And so it just kind of grew from there. Uh, but you do such a great job in your book of sort of like weaving in these individual stories of, of people who are, for whatever reason, uh, various reasons, deciding against unionizing. So I guess, you know, the, the, the million dollar question is, is who are these union renegades? What, what's their background? What are their motivations? Why are they union union renegades? renegades They're just common folk. They are trying to take care of their families. A lot of them are miners, but they're not just miners. Some of them are railroad workers or farmers and they've fallen on hard times in a lot of cases. In some instances, you know, it's kids whose parents have died and they have to go to work early and, you know, they're, they're just children, basically, but they have to make really hard decisions. And whenever it comes to paying in those dues or keeping that money back to make sure that your family has enough to survive, that's a really difficult choice to make. And some of them, they say, you know what? I can't afford to do that. I got to look after my family's interests. I got to keep this money for myself. It doesn't look like the union's going to do anything for me anyway. And and so they become these renegades that uh, really infuriate those organizers. You know, you start off with so many stories of individuals who are, as you said, just, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling to make ends meet and, you know, whether it's not paying into the union due, because that, that slight bit of money is essential to, 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 to stay alive, mm-hmm. to, you know, keep food on the table or keep property. You really do a good job of sort of weaving the big picture in with these sort of personal narratives. So we do have a full sense of, you know, the, the motivations of these union renegades. And another question that's sort of maybe related, your book does center on the Midwest. Uh, and of course, the listeners of Heartland History are particularly interested on stories of the Midwest. 
what makes this story, uh, you know, why, why is this a Midwestern story? Why, why isn't this a story necessarily happening in Appalachia where a lot of people might think of coal mining or even out West? Like what makes this a Midwestern well, story? First, there's really nothing as far as like coal quality or type or anything that makes the Midwest unique. Aside from a couple regions in, in Appalachia, most of these mines are still mining the exact same coal and they have the exact same processes. So I would say that you would find this story just about everywhere. And certainly organizers would tell you, no, I cannot for the life of me organize West Virginia. And so they're, they're really angry there too. But what makes the Midwest unique is that the Midwest in the Gilded Age has this really rich history of organizing already. The Midwest was among the most thoroughly organized in the United Mine Workers, but they were also the place where the very first nationwide miners union began in the mid-1800s. So um, they have this long legacy. They've produced major labor leaders like uh, Richard Travelick and Eugene Debs. And so there are all these names that just come out of the Illinois coal fields or the Indiana coal fields. And yet the organizers, despite all of this, still cannot organize this region for anything. And so if there was any place that the union should be strong, it would be in the Midwest, but it's not there. And so that's really why I was curious about the Midwest, because I knew they had this history. I knew that at least these folks would know the benefit of unionism and somehow they're still not in the union. And so that's pretty much why the, the Midwestern area is the central focus of this book. Yeah, it, you know, again, it's so interesting to think about the the landscapes of Eugene Debs, uh, you know, right down the road being, you know, from a coal mine, in fact, where unionizing is so difficult <laughs> for these union leaders. You spend a great deal of time outlining unique relationships between all aspects of society and sort of the rural Midwest and these coal mining regions. And particularly you talk about the difference between someone who might have been a full-time miner, a coal miner, and farmers uh, who are not necessarily full-time miners, but are mining sometimes. Uh, so what is the dynamic there? Maybe, you know, what is the dynamic between a, a full-time miner and a farmer? Well, at first it was a perfectly fine dynamic. I mean, this relationship had been going on ever since mining in the Midwest had taken place. It was a natural kind of symbiotic relationship. I mean, the farmers, they, they don't have that much to do on their farms in the winter months. And that just so happens to be the exact same time that demand for coal starts to pick up. You know, it's cold, you have the factories running, but then you also have a lot of people wanting to heat their homes and businesses and coal's the way that you do that. So um, you have these farmers seeing this opportunity for extra income in the mines in the winter months, and they can't let that go. They, they like to have that extra money. And then the flip side's also true. You see um, miners in the summer months, whenever there's not as much demand for coal. Um, actually, their wages decreased in the summer anyway. And so they're looking for extra money. A lot of times their mines are running part time. And so they'll go to the farms. That's whenever the farms need extra hands. And so they're helping each other out throughout the year. And the miners didn't mind that at first. They actually, a lot of times they would hire the farmers themselves and they would make a little bit extra money for themselves by hiring those farmers to work in the mines. So it worked out nicely, at least at first. But things turned as um, as the agrarian crisis started to get a little bit worse and a little bit worse, farmers just couldn't make those profits like they used to. And they started pouring into the mines. And that's where you see um, basically that relationship going off the rails. Yeah, I, I think that's such an interesting point to point to the agricultural crisis as this sort of new moment uh, of tension between this what was at least a sort of balanced sort of social relationship between miners and farmers. So what 
what happens? I mean, you know, what 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 is the new drama between the farmers and the miners? There's so much drama. Uh, basically, uh, the farmers are still going into the mines for supplemental income. Farming is still their main income. And so basically what that means is they're desperate enough to need that extra money, but not so desperate that they are willing to go on strike for higher wages necessarily. They will take just about anything that the coal companies offer. And it just so happened that the Gilded Age coal industry is in this intense race to the bottom for producing the cheapest coal. Companies know that if they can basically cut their production costs, they can price their coal more cheaply and they can kind of elbow out the competition and sell more coal contracts and make larger profits. But a lot of that relies on really low wages. And so if they are able to hire a bunch of farmers for less than what a regular professional full-time miner would make, that's going to basically elbow out a lot of miners out of that extra income. They can either accept a wage reduction or they can try and find work elsewhere. And whenever you're dealing with something like the panic of 1893, it can be very difficult to find a job that makes up for that lost income. And so you see a lot of miners blaming farmers for their situation that they're facing. And it just gets worse as miners think about striking and the farmers say, no, I'm not going to strike. I need this money. So screw you. Or I will strike, but you have to give me part of the union assistance fund. Otherwise, I'm going to go back to the mines. And you can imagine that just makes the, the miners even more irate. And it gets worse from there. So yeah, it's it's a messy situation. It's messy on that sort of localized level, but you also note that there's intense messiness if we're gonna keep running with that, you know? It's messy at the local and national level, like that dialogue between national labor organizations and even local miners, let alone local farmers. Uh, and you do sort of try, you, you untangle that relationship, those relationships uh, very well in the book, but maybe you could talk a little bit about this. What are some of those conflicts between local miners and those national labor organizations as this, you know, these the economic realities of the 1890s continue to play out? Well, that's the second part of the story. And you're right, that was the most difficult part to tell because there's so many moving parts to it. Uh, so you have this struggle that's taking place in the coal mines, but then you also have this trend that's taking place in organized labor at this exact same time period. These industries that at this time, they're starting to become major players that are able to basically corner entire markets. And that's true for the railroad industry. It's coming into its fore during this time period in the Gilded Age. And um, you see coal operators trying to corner the market for themselves. This national market is developing because railroad lines are stretching across the country. And so you have where previously local mines basically fed their own local market and they could maybe ship some coal up to Chicago if they were in the Midwest. By the time we get to the 1880s and 1890s, rail lines stretch everywhere. And so now these guys aren't just competing against, you know, people in neighboring states in the Midwest, they're also competing against the people in Appalachia to sell coal. And so these unions understand that if they want to be able to fight for workers' wages, they're going to have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these organizations on a national level. Basically, they have to control an entire market that is really decentralized. So they tried to do this by strengthening their national union, and they basically gave more power to the national boards, gave them the power to strike or the decision to not strike. And anybody who joined the union was expected to follow those orders. 
And this is a huge break from how organization used to work in anywhere in the United States. Previously, organizations like the Knights of Labor had been really autonomous. They had allowed local unions to kind of decide for themselves the terms that they were going to work for, when they would strike, and things like that. But whenever you see organizations like the United Mine Workers forming, that ability disappears. And workers who can remember that time before, they have a hard time swallowing the idea of somebody in an office somewhere who doesn't mine coal anymore, telling them when they can and cannot strike. And so that um, it creates a really complex dynamic. Obviously, the organizers are trying to do what they can to control the market, but rank and file miners don't always see it that way. And so there's a lot of mistrust between the workers themselves and these um, larger labor leaders and a lot of frustration over what the labor leaders see as important. You know, they're always going to be chasing after the regions that have the largest amount of coal miners, and the Midwest isn't it. The Midwest was more thoroughly organized, but they didn't have the largest numbers. And so organizers focused on other regions and just kind of let the Midwest off to themselves, which only made the situation worse. Yeah. And as I was reading that, it was just so fascinating to try to to understand sort of the day-to-day experiences of those Midwestern miners, you know, in places like Southern Indiana or Kansas or, or Illinois. And as they are both invested in some way into the union, whether that's like financially actually invested in the union, but as you, as you said, you've got these unions that are starting to actually model themselves after corporate structures. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to feel like, in fact, the unions aren't interested with them. I, I just found that to be a really interesting dynamic, again, that makes us as historians really think about sort of what's going on at the ground level. How how is the everyday miner experiencing these drastic changes uh, that are happening at a national level? So I'm curious, what kind of efforts or attempts did the unions do to attempt to say like, no, we are looking out for you or, or, or not, you know, what attempts were there to say like, no, you're a minor in Southern Indiana, but we do care about you. We swear. Honestly, there wasn't that much. Uh, It's really sad. There was one instance where miners in Southern Illinois were just completely shocked because there was a complete change in union leadership. The the union itself had changed and nobody had told them. And they they were completely shocked. What do you mean that we're doing this now? I, I I thought I was still in this organization and this is an entirely new thing. And so they're completely out of the loop. And so they there's a lot of lip service sometimes and i'm thinking in particular about like the strike of 1894 whenever they're really trying to keep the midwestern miners from leaving the union but by then a lot of these miners they they're not buying it anymore just because there hasn't been anything that was really given to them as far as action wise from the national board yeah it's so interesting and you bring up that 1894 strike which is you know it's a big piece of uh, of the story that you're telling in your book. What made that 1894 strike so significant, particularly for miners, uh, coal miners in the Midwest? Well, there's a lot that's going on in 1894. First of all, this is going to be the very first time that the United Mine Workers really tries to institute a nationwide strike. They're going to try and use that centralized labor structure that they've been working on for years at that point. This is whenever they say, all right, everybody fall in line. We're all going to strike on this day and we're all going to stop striking whenever we say stop striking. And none of that happened, right? (laughs) The miners didn't start whenever the union told them to and they didn't stop whenever the union told them to. And so 
there's a lot of chaos going on, but this is the very first time where you see the miners union trying to implement a business style unionism and make it work on a national level. So that's one thing. But then the other thing that's really important about 1894 is just this moment. Um, they're in the middle of a really serious depression that's hurting a lot of sectors of the United States, not just coal mining, but railroads go on strike during this time period. Farmers are in desperate situations, and you have the, these people who have decided to just march to Washington to demand that the, the government pay attention to them. They're some sometimes we still recognize them as like Coxie's army, and so this moment when you have all this excitement coming from these grassroots places, it starts to give this energy. And the miners are a part of that. And so it creates this moment where they're kind of feeding off of that momentum themselves. And they think, you know, nothing can stop us. And so more and more miners join in on this, this moment of striking. And they really feel like they can get it. And then, of course, everything kind of falls apart whenever the National Union says, all right, that's enough. We're going to stop. When they, they stop them, they stop the strike before they even got to the wage amount that the miners were supposed to be stopping for. And so a lot of miners believe that the National Board was premature in canceling the strike. And there were allegations that union leadership took bribes and that they benefited personally. And they left the miners just kind of out there to fend for themselves. So there's this really deep feeling of betrayal that happens as a result of 1894. And I think it really does a, um, that instance really does a nice showcase, or a nice job showcasing basically how strong the union really wants to be. You know, that's, that's the direction that they're aiming for, but they're just not quite there yet. And they want to take credit for this nationwide strike, but the, the miners aren't there for them. They think that these guys are joining the strike because they believe in unionism, but they're really joining the strike because this seems like the best chance in the moment to improve their interests for themselves. And so there's this basically a giant misunderstanding on that front, but ultimately what it ends up doing is convincing coal operators that the union actually is something formidable. And so they actually go on a lot more intensive efforts to union bust after that. So it really is a, an important strike that both kind of shows the strength of what could have been there, but also really serves as a major roadblock to labor organizing. Yeah. And you sort of hint at this and, and this maybe is outside the bounds of the book a little bit, but I think related. I'm, I'm curious, you saw 1894 going forward. What changed in the in sort of the organizational techniques of those unions after 1894 too? Because my sense is they recognized the complaints from members in that instance. Were there attempts afterwards to change at all? There were, yeah. So after... Really, after the 1894 strike, there was this kind of lull in organizing. The, a lot of miners that were in the union left, and the the, the union journal, the United I can't remember the name of it now, the United Mine Workers Journal, <laughs> um, started. It actually decreased in size. They stopped printing as many papers. They just don't have the budget for that anymore. And so you see this kind of falling down until around the late 1890s, whenever John Mitchell, a young up-and-coming miner from northern Illinois, basically starts to kind of climb the ladder in um, in the union organization. And he had been there for a lot of these issues. He had seen the strike issues play out where the national board wasn't listening to the miners. And so he really worked at least a little bit more 
consciously, I would say, to listen to the concerns of the miners. And I think that went a long way. But then also they started having more national union drives. Mother Jones got involved with the union around 1894 and really began pushing in the late 1890s. And so more and more people started to join the union as a result of those efforts. And it just so happened that that was around the same time whenever the agricultural crisis started to ease off a little bit too. And so that kind of took away that pressure as well. So there's a bunch of different pieces, but a lot of it does come back down to the union trying to at least on some instances take more interest in the miner's interest. But there is a caveat to that. Around um, around 1896, 1897, the union stopped printing miners' letters where they were complaining to the union about all the things that were going on. So they basically nipped that whole complaining thing in the bud. <laughs> and so if people did still have a problem with the union, the union wasn't going to recognize it anymore. That was, again, as just reading your book, that struck me as the most interesting component of those publications was that they did, in fact, print those letters that were critiquing the actual organization itself, which was fascinating. But now to know that they they did, in fact, cut that out. They stopped it right after. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, I can see why. But man, that was a, a huge loss in the letters after that. That's basically one of the reasons why I had to stop writing the book yeah. when I did. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I, I probably hurt your uh, research a little bit in that regard. A little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about national and local dynamic you also spend uh, quite a bit of time talking about sort of fissures within the labor movement uh, at, at the more local level uh, because of tensions uh, of nativism uh, and racism in mining communities as well. You note that black and non-native English speaking miners faced particular hardships, not only from, you know, other miners, but the unions themselves. What were the experiences of these workers and how did it affect the larger labor movement in the region? It's a really sad story in a lot of respects, because on one hand, the union recognized that they did need to get all workers into the union, regardless of you know race, ethnicity, their language. And so there is, on one hand, this really conscious effort to include everybody, at least on paper. And it's, it's another one of those instances where the union expected everybody to go along with them, even if they didn't look after individual concerns. And as we all know, there are lots of things that would give a black miner or a non-native English speaking miner pause for concern, like, you know, a chance to, to really think about what's going on here and just kind of stop and think, wait, what would I really join a union that doesn't, doesn't look after my interest? Because there's so much racism in the mines. There's so much racism everywhere else in society. And they're working with people who have racist views. And so it kind of causes them to pause and think, well, I don't know if I want to join a union and be a part of this and be, be in this union with this person that doesn't want me to sit in this union with them. And so that's one part of it. Another part, though, really comes from the stereotypes that you see playing out. There's, and they're completely not true, but there were stereotypes that black miners were striker, strike breakers and non-native English-speaking miners were unskilled miners. And both of that is completely not true. Black miners were not any more prone to break strikes than white miners were. And white miners broke strikes all the time. People broke strikes because they needed to. And as far as these other, you know, non-native English speakers, there were lots of people who were born in the United States who just didn't speak English as a first language. They know how to mine. And people who came over from Europe, they knew how to mine as well. But 
there is this sense somehow that they need to be kept out of the mines. And so miners on the local level would sometimes do their best to push those individuals out. And the union wasn't really interested in listening to those complaints from those miners. They said, well, no, we, we allow you in our union. What more do you want? We're pushing for higher wages for you. Whenever we get these higher wages, you will get the higher wages as well. And the black miners and non-English speaking, non-native English speaking miners would reply and say, well, no, it's bigger than that. I'm still facing discrimination. The union needs to take a stand on discrimination. And when the union refused to do that, that's whenever you see these individuals say, well, you know what, if you're not going to look after this for me, then I don't see the point in joining the union and staying in the union just to help your cause. Yeah, there's so many, so many dynamics that are going on in these, in these coal fields that it's, uh, it's it really is impressive how you've managed in this in, in union renegades to sort of weave together these multiple narratives because it, it's as we are talking about it is just sort of dizzying to sort of also try to <laughs> comprehend these all these dynamics. Uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, it was sometimes dizzying to write. <laughs> what what should listeners of Heartland history take away from the story that you've depicted for us in in union renegades? I think the big thing that Union Renegades offers is the perspective of common workers that's really um, overlooked in a lot of histories of this period. You can really see how people who worked in the coal industry were connected to people in other occupations and how husbands and wives interacted with each other and and also with their communities. And so uh, while this book definitely tells a story about um, the troubles of union organizing and national and local unions and the, the struggles between those things, it also offers a really unique glimpse into how rural Gilded Age communities lived and worked just on a daily basis. And so that's where I think a lot of the merit comes from in my book. But that said, I also think that it offers insights into the problems that we face today in union organizing. You know, many folks today are still working multiple occupations to make ends meet. And if you look at the reasons why today's workers um, are not joining the unions, the reasons that they give themselves, a lot of those reasons are strikingly similar to the ones found in my book. So in that respect, I really think that this research is relevant to today. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I will second everything that you just said. Uh, Absolutely. Before we wrap things up, I'm just curious if you might be willing to share with our listeners anything that you're working on now. What are you working on? Uh, Is there anything that we should be looking forward to from you uh, in the coming years? Well, um, I'm in the process of looking into my next project, which is probably going to look at a lot more at how organizations dealt with investors, middle managing, and things like that. So my book, Union Renegades, really looked a little bit at small-scale investing from miners and farmers and how they kind of got their toes wet, basically, in, in corporate culture. And so I want to dig a little bit more into those into those efforts to kind of see if I can ferret out a little bit more. I was fascinated with um, Charles Devlin, who I talk about in Union Renegades. And so he was this fall guy for the railroad whenever the railroad went belly up. And so I'm really interested in finding these individuals who start out as workers and start investing and still very much consider themselves workers, but then also become middle managers and kind of like the henchmen for these companies. And so that's one of the places that I'm planning on um, researching next. That sounds fascinating. I'm already like excited for that. So no pressure, (laughs) uh, but we'll be expecting that shortly. No, uh, that sounds great. Uh, Well, Dr. Kaldemeyer, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. 
I really enjoyed this conversation and I really did enjoy reading your work. Again, for our listeners, the book is Union Renegades, Miners, Capitalism, and Organizing in the Gilded Age, published by the University of Illinois Press. Get your hands on a copy at a local bookstore or go directly to the University of Illinois Press website and order it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. I have had so much fun. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.